You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa, and this week we return to the impact of climate change on our national security. Elisa, my intrepid co-hostess with the mostess, I'm Yvette. Last week, the National Intelligence Council, which is a body comprised of members of various intelligence community or IC agencies, and which reports to the Director of National Intelligence, friend of the cast of Real Haynes, issued its national intelligence estimate called Climate Change and International Responses Increasing Challenges to U.S. National Security through 2040. Okay, so the nice thing about the NIEs is they all contain several key judgments, uh, which are the you know consensus opinion of the participant agencies, as all NIEs do. So I thought tonight what we could do is we could just briefly walk through them for those of you who have not had a chance to pour over this thing quite yet. And well, before we even jump into that, Elisa, I just want to remind our longtime listeners about our very first cast on this uh, topic, climate change is a national security issue that we did way back when we kicked off the cast um, with Mark Nevitt. Uh, I think that that cast is still very timely and would lead nicely into this more detailed um, discussion about government policy. So I, I agree. That was an outstanding cast. He's a delight and you really should listen to it. And uh, although our audio wasn't quite up to snuff, I would say that our cast with Lindsay Rodman on the Arctic looks just unbelievably prescient. True. So if you had any illusions about how useful the cast has been over the years, um, just follow the trail uh, through this particular topic, climate change as a national security challenge. So let's jump right into it, Elisa. Thanks so much for the great setup. Um, The first key judgment is that geopolitical tensions are likely to grow as countries increasingly argue about how to accelerate reductions in net greenhouse gas emissions. You know, and these are the kinds of changes that are going to be necessary in order to meet the Paris Agreement goals. Debate will center, shockingly, on who bears the most responsibility to act and pay. As part of this key judgment, the NIE noted that China and India would play critical roles in determining the trajectory of temperature rise. Both of these countries have a billion people in them, all of whom are going to need energy for their lives. Both countries are gaining wealth and are going to acquire and drive more cars. And in the case of China, increase their consumption of beef, a major contributor of CO2. All right. So on that score, uh, Norway's prime minister, and let me say for our listeners, I guess everybody knows Norway is quite frankly a petro state um, with access to uh, Barents Sea and North Sea oil. It's a major uh, petro state in the nature of like Russia, Nigeria, any of those. But Norway's prime minister, whose name is Jonas Garstori, he seemed to assert Norway's right to continue to draw oil from the Barents Sea in the areas north of the polar circle. Again, I would commend uh, Lindsay Rodman in one of our early casts. But let me say, you should note that uh, several years ago, um, Norway's sovereign wealth fund, which is its chief you know, external investment fund and responsible really for a lot of the wealth in Norway and, ma- and managing it, they said they would divest themselves of fossil fuels. This is sort of a fascinating shift from Yuna's story. And Yuna's story is not a right-leaning PM. Uh, he is more in the nature of a center-left in Norway. And Norway has not enjoyed of late sort of the value of the kroner and so forth. So he may be answering to constituents. This will become a theme that you'll see as we discuss the NIE and what some of the impediments are to really 
moving us forward and away from the stagnation that we're in right now with respect to transitioning away from fossil fuels. But I'd also just remind everybody on this uh, issue involving these nations that are very, very far north, Norway, Russia, the United States, and I think one other nation have staked flags on the pole. The reason for that is it beneath the ice, which is melting uh, abruptly, are the largest oil reserves on the planet, you know, easily eclipsing what you think of under the Saudi ground. This is something to know. The other thing to know, and I would just remind those of you who haven't heard this in a while, the Chinese and other governments are sitting in something called the, I think it's called the Polar Council, the Arctic Council. You know, we aren't there. We aren't really as involved in that as we need to be. China is kind of showing up. And at the same time, China as a country has purchased an enormous number of vessels, which are known as icebreakers. Um, It's not clear what their intent is with respect to the Arctic. It's not clear right now how many of those vessels they have acquired or, you know, reverse engineered and continue to produce themselves. And it's not clear whether or not they simply want to use them as sort of a trans-Arctic shipment shortcut in order to export or move goods and, and other items. So this is alarming that Norway, of all countries, has come up with this. But on the other hand, let's be honest, um, Norway, we think of it as a a left-leaning sort of socialist kind of fuzzy and warm and liberal. And the truth is, it's a petrostate. And and that's what it is. The other thing to note, and this will become a theme again, is that Australia, that prime minister, Australia's prime minister, has said that he's backing out of a, a climate summit. While Australia has announced plan to go, plans to go essentially zero carbon by 2050, that goal is so far in the future that no one can hold any elected official uh, accountable for a failure to meet that goal. So this is kind of in the nature of what you see, which is a lot of what I'll call ridiculous non-promises that really can't deliver. So Yvette, let's move on. I think this is you know, really interesting um, to kind of look at the way some of these different states are shifting around over time when it comes to the approach to climate change. I think there are a lot of concerns that the United States was, for all intents and purposes, fairly absent from climate negotiations. And so it may be one of the reasons that um, we are seeing such a divergence from what the original stated goals were after the original Paris Agreement was signed. So let's move on to judgment number two. It's also very interesting. It says that climate change will exacerbate cross-border geopolitical flashpoints as states secure their interests. But it mentions that extreme climate protecting measures that could be deployed, such as large-scale solar geoengineering, could create new areas of disputes. Did you know what geoengineering was before you read this report, Elisa? You know, I want to say, and, and, and I know you want to reach over the Ethernet and kind of go slap, slap, slap. But wasn't this referenced in the three-body problem? I mean, I think it actually was. It's upset my dog in any event, as you can hear. I also, so Elisa and I have mentioned our love of three-body problem before on the cast. I would also say I watched a, a, a documentary, apropos of nothing, on Biosphere 2 that was of interest to me because when I was a young tyke, I won, you know, second place in the countywide science and engineering fair and went on to go to the International Science and Engineering Fair in Arizona. And the site of the engineering fair was at Biosphere 2. And I was 
flipping through, you know, my Netflix and chill Hulu, whatever the ABA does not endorse any particular streaming service. I won't tell everybody where it was. Anyway, it was a fascinating documentary about biosphere two and what the technological solutions would be for when we have to migrate to another planet. What are some of the technologies that we should be thinking about building out? It it sounds like these are the kinds of things that we're going to be looking at where we do tend to look to technology to rescue us from our problems. Um, So let's talk a little bit about what solar geoengineering is. Well, wait a minute. We can't leave. You mentioned biosphere. So you raise these things and you just you throw them out there. And I have to say, I will give you a quick trivia question, Yvette. Who was the CEO of the Biosphere? Steve Bannon was oh. the last CEO of the Biosphere. After, so what, um, what, what the, happened there? I don't know what happened after there. The project, um, after the project was over. It was actually quite a fascinating story because it starts off with kind of these hippies in the sixties. I don't know if they're hippies, but they were, you know, kind of the Timothy O'Leary, you know, elevate your consciousness. We're going to be in a a commune. We're going to travel around the world and like build a hotel and we're going to build our own ship and we're going to solve humanity's problems. And it was financed by, um, ironically, Texas oil well. Uh, one of the scion of a prominent Texas family was funding this enterprise for this group. And they uh, were inspired to create Biosphere 2. And the idea was that uh, for, for all of the young listeners out there who have no idea what I'm talking about, this was a project in the 90s where they built this giant dome in Arizona for um, scientists to live in. And they were to be sealed off for two years, eight people. And the objective was for it to be self-contained where they would not, um, you know, have any outside contact. They would uh, not have any outside air or food. They would farm their own food. They would be self-sustaining. And the idea was this was supposed to lead towards some developments towards moon colonization or Mars colonization. It was a very controversial project. Um, part of the problem was that it wasn't, so the rigors of the scientific method were challenged because there was no way to repeat this experiment. There was an issue where they were using a CO2 scrubber for a portion of their atmosphere. After the project was over, the billionaire appointed Steve Bannon to be chair of the project. And um, the scientists complained about the data from the experiment becoming inaccessible to them thereafter. And so it was, for, for those of you who were not children of the 90s, it was certainly a cultural touch point. It was something that you, you probably remember as kind of an oddity. But the attempt was there to really reach for developing additional technologies that would support uh, life off of this planet. I do. I do remember when they all emerged afterwards in their. I think they wore like jumpsuits, if I recall. And they, they, had, all grown, they had all grown their own food and whatnot. They were all considerably thinner. They were what their medical doctor actually his medical philosophy was that calorie restriction was the key to longevity. And so he was totally fine with uh, the fact that they were not taking in as much as probably at the time the food pyramid suggested that they should be in in the in the right proportions. Um, So it was really fascinating. And I think like, you know, just to kind of bring it back to the instant uh, conversation about the NIE, I think it really does tie into some of these themes that we're going to be seeing 
uh, across the geopolitical space as far as, you know, climate change, according to a number of reports, including the UN estimate, is is an inexorable force. And we are not um, doing enough of what we need to do um, on the man-made side by all of the scientific uh, or by the consensus of scientific opinion. Um, We're not doing nearly enough um, to stave off some of these incredibly dangerous forces that we can predict are going to be coming. So this um, this geoengineering, solar geoengineering, though, it sounds great. The idea of it is that it's a, it's a way to cool the earth, in other words, by reflecting solar radiation back into space. So what's interesting about this is that it's a little more involved and a little less certain and considerably less safe than you would like. But the two main approaches that are being researched are something called stratospheric aerosol injection and marine cloud brightening. And apparently what stratospheric aerosol injection does is it simulates what would happen if we had a huge volcano, and I mean a huge one. Um, And you know how they emit like these particles and they get into the upper atmosphere, which is the stratosphere. So they then reflect sunlight, which leads to cooling just as long as they remain in the stratosphere. And that can work, but only for a few years after the injection. And then by injecting another thing, which is sulfate or other aerosol particles into the stratosphere, it could mimic the cooling effect of a large volcanic eruption. So that's the idea. Uh, Sounds extremely science fiction-y. What is the catch? Um, So uh, I'll let you say that. What did the Union of Concerned Scientists have to say about this? Were they all on board? Sounds like they were not. The Union of Concerned Scientists um, opposes this particular solution because it would have transborder implications and amount to global governance, which again is the theme that's touched on in the three-body problem. Right. In any case, we we don't know what the impact would be. I, I just, you know, we both have middle school boys and my son is just discovering what happens when um, invasive or, or non-native species are introduced into, you know, ecological systems. A lot of times it just kind of, you know, that new species just takes over um, because it's, it's out of, it's not properly balanced within the ecology. Similarly, we have never released a whole bunch of particles into our atmosphere in an attempt to have like a whole planet effects. So it'd be really, really difficult to predict. And I think that's what's giving a lot of these scientists pause. Yeah. And there apparently a lot of the discourse around how to test it is doing so on a very small scale. Um, And it looks like there are some efforts underway to test that. So that would be one thing that is in the offing. I think the, the concern in the NIE is that some nation would jump the gun and take action on its own and would do this and it would have a global impact. And so that seems as we get more and more desperate to respond to climate change, you do wonder if one of the large wealthy nations, us, China, somebody would uh, suddenly take it upon themselves to do this without fear or real regard for consequence. So uh, that's alarming. The third key judgment, though, uh, which is really kind of it in the beginning of the report, although they're all laid out in quite um, elaborate detail, uh, and it is consumable. It's less than, I think, 30 pages. But the third key judgment is the scientific forecasts that are available now indicate that the there are intensifying physical effects of climate change out to 2040 and beyond, and that these 
changes will be felt most, and not surprisingly, most acutely in developing countries, which are the least able to adapt to such changes. So not surprising, right? Not at all. I mean, I've, I've read reports about especially island nations like the Marshall Islands being extremely concerned, like climate change represents an existential threat to them um, more so than it does to the rest of us. I mean, it does for the rest of us, but even more immediately so for some of these island nations. And there hasn't been enough seriousness. Um, The NIE points out that some countries are going to use these climate pledges to mask a lack of seriousness that will turn out exactly how it is expected to. Right. Well, we had that, you know, we have the example of Australia, which is, well, hey, we'll get to this in 2050. That sounds nice. But I thought the the most cynical and annoying one of the week, if we had to identify an annoying false pledge of the week, seemed to me to be that of Mohammed bin Salman of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who said that they will go carbon neutral by 2060. You know, I had to chuckle because I thought, um, you know, please forgive my dismemberment of a journalist in exchange for which I promised to do something decades from now, maybe and probably not. Something like that. We learned that fossil fuels remain popular because of the sunk costs, meaning money that's already been spent on infrastructure to extract and refining fossil fuels is, is really high. And so are the numbers of people who are currently employed in the industry. So we do have a bias towards inaction. There may be more jobs in clean energy and the, the people who are working in, in the fossil fuel industry argue against that saying, look, they need to feed their families right now and they can't afford to wait until renewable infrastructure has been developed. Yeah. And I, I don't know how much, um, you know, I, I had occasion to um, talk to relatives at some point who had worked in the coal industry and I didn't quite grasp myself uh, the kind of bonding that they feel from the experience of going down into a coal mine together and how it's this apparently, as it's been described to me, quite an exhilarating uh, unifying thing. It, it kind of makes me think about Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, and how there's a sense of identity around that, that kind of work, you know, which is, is dangerous, takes a, a high degree of bravery and the like, and how hard it would be to pivot from that to something that um, seemed a little less sort of treacherous and you felt a little bit less tribally identified, you know, with your fellow workers. And I understand the same thing. And I've seen some of this um, having lived in Norway, um, having lived in that area, you know, I think it's the same thing when they're working out on those, you know, offshore drilling sites. It's a similar thing. It's dangerous. There's a degree of sort of camaraderie and bonding and tribalism that goes with that kind of job. So you're right. And we have to remember these are constituencies. These are voting constituents for the people who are decision makers who are in a position to, you know, push forward some of these changes. And I think we all know um, that they stand a likelihood of not being elected if they don't, unfortunately, advocate for the digging in or remaining of these industries. So how we break that cycle, I'm not sure. I, it's really challenging. I mean, I, I as a, you know, as a veteran, I'm, I'm very, very sympathetic to the bonding nature of, you know, these kinds of dangerous jobs and what the, the bonds are that you could form. However, you know, our, our current estimates are that there are 43,000 miners in the United States right now. Um, and this is down from the peak of coal mining, which was 863,000, which is also not a whole lot um, considering 
you know, that right now we have 7 billion people. And so it's, it's kind of challenging to, you know, as, as sympathetic as we might be, and, and notwithstanding the, you know, the fact that coal miners did do a lot to bring this country along, uh, that it might really be, you know, uh, necessary to transition away from this type of energy production for not just the climate effects, but also because we wouldn't have the reliance that we have on foreign oil sales. I think the role of coal is an interesting one. I think everybody agrees that, you know, it's going to be a long time before we're able to work our way off that. But I take your point, you know, should really 43,000 people, the interest of just 43,000 people in the United States be dictating how climate uh, policy is managed globally, really. And so I think, uh, you know, we don't have to get into it in this cast, but I think this also goes back to the importance of our uh, maintaining global leadership and engagement um, because I do sometimes wonder when I listen to these foreign leaders, you know, if we had maintained our sort of global leadership role, if they would even be saying this, if they would even be sort of ceding to these demons, if, if you will, regarding how to manage climate issues. And so I would say one of the, the clear takeaways from this was the important role of business and how business is going to industry and business making shifts without policy you know, for their own longevity as corporations really are in a position to drive change. And I thought it was kind of interesting. And I cheer, although I I, I see it in context, the decision by Hertz rental car company today to buy thousands of Teslas and add them to its fleet. So while we don't see any carbon recapture technology breaking through yet, which is noted in the NIE as being one of the most important things that could happen, the report predicts wild success and primacy for the country that discovers and builds renewable technologies that then could be marketed globally. And the market for that would obviously be enormous. I think you're right. I just, you know, I'm interested to see if business is going to be able to make that pivot rapidly enough, especially since it seems like there are, you know, we have a a lot of challenges that are are linked to this problem, including, um, you know, the migration problem. Like this, this gets complicated super, super fast, right? You know, it's been all over the news that there's been an uptick in migration to the United States, but the NIE predicts that a mass migration that's driven by climate change would exceed anything on a scale that could be managed by a robust and well-staffed border response. On that cheery note, that you know, this is this is why these um, migrants are going to be potentially leaving and coming to our country. The NIE found eleven countries of concern that would be disparately affected by climate change and would possibly become totally destabilized. Count how many of these are in our hemisphere: um, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Haiti, which has a number of other challenges. India, Iraq, and Pakistan are at the top of the list. Uh, one country that absolutely wouldn't be able to cope was North Korea. And, you know, we obviously have concerns on knock-on effect on how the leadership would respond to a loosening grip on power. Yeah, I mean, that particular part where they were identifying the nations, the 11 nations of concern, uh, was quite alarming. It didn't really surprise me in the sense that, you know, I've sort of tracked for years what's been happening um, and Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua and El Salvador in terms of their ability to do things like simply cultivate coffee. 
And um, it's just changed wildly over the years. And climate change has really reduced their ability to develop foods for export. So it's not surprising, but I do have concerns about North Korea since I guess from my mind, it really is a national cult. And, you know, cults do pretty crazy things sometimes uh, when they feel or perceive threat. So that is a deep concern. What I thought was interesting, uh, in any national intelligence estimate, there's always some things that they list at the back that say, if this happened, then our estimate or our assessment would necessarily change. They don't say how it would change because these events haven't occurred yet. But I thought it might be nice to walk through a couple of those real fast, Yvette. I also want to say where we were talking about nuggets of hope in what is really a parade of horribles here regarding climate. Um, But if there were a major breakthrough in in large-scale development of zero-carbon energy or carbon dioxide removal technology, that would change the estimate. So uh, I, I don't know who the brilliant young minds are out there and the brilliant young scientists, but I hope everybody who can is um, working on this right now because that gives me some hope. And I hope that we can, in the future, learn a little bit more about where this technology is in terms of its development, what laws might enhance and incentivize the developments of both of those technologies. So I think that's kind of it for this week. That's our just really quick um, installment this week on climate and national security. A couple things I wanted to commend to you. We've mentioned them before. Hal and Marilyn Wiener are local documentarians who have um, over the years done a number of documentaries on climate change. One of them on climate change and national security, which I would say you can probably find online. It's called Extreme Realities. It's hosted and um, narrated by Matt Damon. Uh, it's also very well researched and talks about the long-term mass migration effects that could potentially occur. I'll just remind everybody, if you think we have a border crisis now, you just wait until sea levels start rising. That is nothing we would be able to manage. So um, take a look at that. Go back over some of those podcasts that we did earlier. Um, we feel like we were ahead of everybody else, right, Yvette? We've certainly shown a commitment to this topic uh, on the cast. Uh, I think it's really necessary for people to, to wake up and understand this is a, a, a huge problem, not just not just because we like breathing clean air and drinking clean water and, you know, don't particularly want my Alexandria townhouse to be beachfront property <laughs> um, anytime soon. Um, so you, you uh, are yeah. in a floodplain. You are in a floodplain. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm putting not, it out there. Yeah, okay? Thank you. Um, so uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'll have a beach house elsewhere, please. I hope that um, people continue to remain engaged on this topic and do what they can. Before we sign out, though, let me say this. I know a lot of you are waiting to hear from members of uh, the committee, particularly our August members of the committee, regarding the cases that are pending currently before the Supreme Court. We promise to address those in the coming weeks. Uh, we will bring uh, learned people forward to talk about this. And you know what they are. It's Abu Zubaydah, Fazaga. Um, there are a couple of other cases pending. I just want to say to our young listeners, we will be getting to that. In the meantime, I would encourage you to go on supremecourt.gov, listen to the oral arguments. If you have time and you can work it in, given you're staring down the barrel of exams, take a look at some of the briefs. Everybody filed wonderful briefs, all sides. Everybody did great work, and it would teach you a lot as a lawyer. If you are so inclined, we'd also love to remind everyone out there 
Um, if you'd like to volunteer to help Afghan refugees, the ABA's microsite will link you through um, to information uh, that will um, link you up with where you can volunteer. Please check it out in the notes for tonight's cast. Well, thank you very much for listening. We don't take your attention for granted. We do bring these topics forward because we think they're super important. Uh, we think that they will inform national security law for decades to come. Uh, it won't just be FISA's. It won't just be, you know, all the laws that you typically think of. Um, and it won't just be uh, sort of DOD regulations. What you're going to find out is I think climate is going to be front and center. And I hope the, the busy young minds out there are thinking about the way national securities uh, law and climate change are going to intersect. So thanks for listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law topics every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. If you have topics you want us to cover, feedback you want to give us, you can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you could send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Don't forget that both of us are here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well and keep your eye on this climate issue, folks. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 